I want to tell you a classic dad story today. I want to tell you about Abraham. You know, we call him Father Abraham, and so he's an important figure to look at here on this Father's Day. As we do, uh, I was thinking about the own transformation in my, my life. I remember being a young person and Father's Day rolling around, and my dad asking for socks, and he would ask for a tie, and he would ask for power tools, and we would get him socks, a tie, and we would get him power tools, and he would be so excited. And I remember thinking as a 13, 14, 15-year-old, that is so lame. You could ask for so many things, and yet you ask for socks, or you want to drill. But he would be so excited about those things. And I don't know what happened or when it happened, but I bought myself a Father's Day gift. I bought matching yard, power yard tools. I got a straight line trimmer. I got a hedge clipper. I've got an edger and I got a leaf blower. They're all battery powered. They're all the same brand. They all take the same battery. I've got this little station set up in my garage where I charge all the batteries. I got them lined up. They're hanging next to each other. They all match. And I just look at it and I get this warm feeling that comes over me. And it was like my kind of early Father's Day gift to myself. And so whatever happens that makes socks and ties and power tools cool, it's, it's happened to me. And so dads, it's, it's probably happened to you. I'm thinking about my dad today. I'm, I'm, I, I know that you probably are as well. Some of us are blessed to have our fathers with us. And, and my father's with the Lord. He, he went to be with the Lord in 2015. But he was a faithful example of what it means to serve the Lord, what it means to lead one's family. And he got it honest. And so today, I'm, I'm also thinking about his dad, my paternal grandfather. His name was Sterling Webster Snodgrass. And Sterling served in World War II. He served in the European theater. Was a, a hero in so many ways. But we never knew what he did. We never knew what his job was. I'll tell you his job just as a testimony to his life. He was part of the Liberation Forces, and so they went into concentration camps, and they were some of the first people to begin to liberate the surviving victims of the Holocaust. So he saw all kinds of horrible things in war, but he did his duty. He, was, he wanted to serve his country, and he did his part. And that commitment is something that, that carried through his life. His, he, his yes was yes. His no was no. He was faithful. He was dependable. And in, 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 <laughs> in many ways, he was different than me. I didn't mean to say those things back to back. Um, but, but he was different than me in, in this regard. Um, I, I, I'm a, a card-carrying extrovert, and, and, and I don't mind um, engaging in lots of different conversations. I'm never, usually never at a loss for words. He was so quiet. He was incredibly quiet, a deep thinker. When he did say something, it was usually pretty profound, but, but hardly ever talked. The classic story is he was, he was one of six or seven siblings, and they had this big family meal, and, and the uncle came, and, and the uncle was there at the family meal, and they sat down at the family meal. And my grandfather, as a kid, he said to the, his uncle, would you pass the rolls? And his uncle said, Sterling, I have never heard you talk so much. And he looked at his uncle and said, well, the rolls have never been that far away. <laughs> and that was just him. He was quiet, dependable, faithful. And with little more than an eighth grade education, after working an hourly job for a company, 
he decided, you know, I want to start my own business. And there was this new thing that was happening in the Kanawha County of West Virginia, which is near Charleston, West Virginia. Houses were beginning to be retrofitted with central heating and air. People were going crazy over the fact that you could just adjust the thermostat and your house could be hot or you could adjust the thermostat and your house would be cool. And so people were going crazy over that. And so he scraped together a little bit of money, got a loan from the bank, and he started Hurricane Metalworks. Now, Hurricane was the town that he lived in. It's spelled just like hurricane. But if you live there, you say hurricane. Okay. So he started Hurricane Metalworks and began to make his own ductwork and install HVAC units and retrofit houses with central heating and air. And it was wildly popular. He carved out a really successful business, um, retired when he was 62 years old, sold the business. It had done very well. But what it took to build that business is what I want to describe for you. Because I think there's, there's a lot of people in our families, a lot of us can relate to one or maybe two people in our families that sort of had this story. My, my grandfather would leave the house at 6 a.m. I know because I would stay with them and I would be up that early. I couldn't sleep, so I would turn cartoons on or something and I'd be watching TV. And I watched my grandmother. She would pack him a lunch. There was a gray lunch pail that she would fill. There would be two sandwiches in it, some kind of snack, an apple, and she would close the lunch pail and then she would take a, a green Coleman thermos and she would fill it with fresh coffee and she would seal it up. That, that Coleman thermos would keep it hot all day long. And on his way out about six in the morning, she would hand him that gray lunch pail, that green Coleman thermos, and that would be all my grandfather would need to, to power through the day. One sandwich about 11 a.m. and then another sandwich about three. The coffee would last all day long. He would come home about 6 p.m. with an empty lunch pail and an empty Coleman thermos. Grandma would wash it and she'd get ready to do it all over again the next day. He would eat a little something and then he would go down into a shop. And in a shop, he had all the things that you would need to make your own duct work. The things that you would need to bend the metal and to fashion the duct work. And he'd have a book and it would have measurements. And he would need four feet of this and eight feet of this and ten feet of that and and I would watch him begin to bend that metal and to shape the ductwork. He'd get it all done. He'd load it up in his truck. And about 9.30, he'd get a shower and go to sleep. And he'd wake up the next day and he'd do it all over again. And that's how he built a successful business. 25 years of doing that. On Saturdays or on Sundays on the way to church, we'd ride through town. And like I said, he was a quiet person. But one of the things I remember him saying is, hey, Mark, you see that house over there? We put the AC in over there. Hey, you see that house over there? We did that building. Hey, you see that church over there? We did that as well. I also remember him telling me all the people that owed him money. <laughs> they haven't paid yet. They haven't paid yet either. We're still hoping they'll send that invoice in. But all those memories came flooding back to me uh, as, as I was going through my, my dad's things after he passed. And one of the things my dad kept was that gray lunch pail. It was a symbol of what it meant to be a father in the Snodgrass tradition. To, to, to wake up every day and to do these simple things, these, these things that, these faithful things, things that ultimately the world might not notice, but things that needed to be done. To let your yes be yes, your no be no. To, to be faithful. And 
my, my, my grandfather and, and my father, and I think fathers in general, feel this pressure to provide. You know, traditionally, that's been a role that, that men have taken on in our society, to be the provider. But you know, things have shifted since, since Mayberry, which, by the way, Mayberry and Leave it to Beaver and all those 50s and 60s sitcoms that exalt the, the male father as the singular provider for the house, you know those weren't real, right? They were, they were fake then, and, and they're, they're fake now. I think about when Mayberry was made. It was during the 60s. I've read about the 60s. Does anybody remember the 60s? I happen to know that the 60s were nothing like Mayberry. But we have this idea of what life was like. The father wakes up. The father provides. Everything works out in the end. The worst thing that could possibly happen is the Aunt B make pickles that are nasty. Um, that was the biggest problem facing Mayberry. But I wonder how many of us, and this is a question for men and women, as things have changed, roles have changed, how many of us feel pressure? Parents, how many of us feel pressure? My, my grandfather felt pressure, which is why he woke up every morning, he filled his lunch pail, and he went to work to alleviate economic pressure for his family. But single moms in the house, Single parents in the house, moms and dads, both working just to try to survive. How many of us feel pressure? We face pressure on all sides. And I want us to just think about that today on this day set aside to, for fathers. It, it, it really can be a day for all of us to think about the pressure that we face. We are facing economic, social, educational, and spiritual pressure. Families are facing pressure like they never had before. And I think there's probably some people in the room, and maybe it is the fathers in the room, we feel this sense of responsibility. We feel that, that we are the person in the midst of our family, and we have to hold these things back. There's wild and crazy cultural things that are encroaching in on our family, and, and we're the person, we're going to stand in the gap for our family, we're going to hold those things back. We're feeling economic pressure have you bought a gallon of gas lately? Have you tried to buy groceries lately? We're feeling that. And so maybe mom and dad, you're getting together and, and you're trying to figure out how to, to solve this equation where your bills now cost more than the income you have coming in. You're feeling that pressure. And so you're standing there in the family and you're trying to hold that back. Here we are in the midst of all kinds of pressures cr crushing in on us. And we feel like we have to provide the solution to all of it. And it can be debilitating. So that's, that's what brings us to Abraham. Abraham knew what it was like to face a lot of these pressures. So let's look at Father Abraham. He did, in fact, have many sons. If you've been to kids' church or kids' camp, maybe you know the song. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. But I think we should add he eventually had many sons. He eventually had many sons. He didn't at first. His story begins in Genesis chapter 12. He's living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, and, and he's already become very wealthy. He has herds and, and, and livestock and all kinds of wealth. 
And God comes to him and, and God reveals himself to Abraham the first time this has happened, where God reveals himself to a, a singular person and a family. And God says to Abraham, I've chosen you. I want you to leave this place and go to a land that I will show you. Look at Abraham's calling, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God is going to use the family of Abraham to bring about the redemption of the world. God chooses a singular family, and through this singular family, he's going to redeem all that's wrong in the world. Well, Abraham, maybe not fully capturing this big picture that God's talking about, he at least says yes to this calling to go from Ur to this land that God would show him. He followed God, he trusted him until he didn't. What we read when Abraham gets to the land is all kinds of problems, all kinds of things going on. Abraham is feeling pressure. All these pressures are are crashing in on him, and he feels that he has to provide the solution to all of it. And really, he makes a mess of the whole thing. In so many ways, he, he just sort of makes a mess of it. And he's really stuck on this idea that, that God's really not doing what God said he would do. I mean, God said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, you know what, God? If you want to make a great nation out of me, this is what he says in Genesis 15. If you want to make a great nation out of me, you're going to have to give me at least one heir. Because right now I have zero. My wife Sarah and I are not able to have children together. And all of this stuff that I have, it's going to pass to this guy named Eliezer. And he's not even a part of my blood family. And so God, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to get with it. And God, again, reveals himself to Abraham and says, Abraham, let's make a covenant together. Let me, let me, let me solidify this, this thing I've called you to. Let's covenant together. Let me solidify it. And God does something pretty miraculous. God of the universe makes a covenant with a human being. The G Genesis 15 tells us this story. And what Abraham does is he takes these animals and he sacrifices them and he splits them in two. And he, and he makes one row on this side and one row on the other. And here are these, these dead animals. And, and there's a pathway right in between them. And that's keeping with the custom of covenant for the ancient Near East. People would join together. Kings would come together or wealthy landowners would come together. They would sacrifice animals. They'd split them apart. And then they'd hold hands and they'd walk through these dead animals. And the symbolism was this. We're entering into an agreement and we're holding hands as we walk through these dead animals. And what we're saying to everyone and to each other, may it be to me as has been done to these animals if I violate this covenant. If I break this promise, may it be to me as has been done to these animals. And so Abraham arranges the animals. He's prepared to go on with the covenant ceremony. And as he is, is waiting for God to show up so they could walk through the animals together, God causes Abraham to go into a sleep. And instead of Abraham and God walking through the animals together, God manifests himself as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. And the smoking pot and the flaming torch, while Abraham is asleep, they walk through the animals together. And what was God saying? What was God saying? 
Let me read verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What God was saying is, Abram, you don't have the capacity to honor this covenant. Abram, neither do you, nor do you have the capacity to possibly manage and deal with all the pressure that is crashing in on your life right now. And what God is saying, I'm going to walk this covenant for you. And what God is saying, may it be to me, I'm putting my own name, my own reputation on the line. May it be to me if I do not keep this promise that I am making to you. Abram, you don't have the ability to keep the promise, but I do. And so I'm going to walk this way for you. Wow, it's a pretty amazing moment. God solidifies the covenant. He walks the, the covenant way and, and, and says, affirms his promise to Abraham. You would think everything would be good after that, right? Well, that's Genesis 15. And then Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are talking one day. There's still no heir. God apparently has forgotten the covenant that he made. And the very next verse is this. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And it's, and it's the, like in the same thought, it's one sentence. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. You see Abram and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. God apparently is late or he's not going to honor this promise. And so they feel like they have to, in order to alleviate the pressure of not having an heir, let's, 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 let's create this surrogate relationship where Hagar bears an heir for us. Now, I'll be honest with you, I heard this story as a kid. And the way this story is normally told is, well, we're, we're introduced to Hagar just the name alone. Has anyone named their daughter Hagar? Just the name alone makes you think that, boy, Hagar is probably not a girl you'd ask to the prom. She's probably not a girl you'd take home to mom either. Hagar. Man, what in the world was Abraham thinking? Why in the world would you want to get mixed up with Hagar? But a few years ago, they did a TV series that's called, just simply called The Bible, where they brought a lot of this to life. And they did something really smart. The actress they got to play Hagar. I mean, she made us understand why Abraham so readily agreed to this. Oh, you mean that could be Hagar? That's, now we know why there was no hesitation on Abraham's part. There was no like, well, should we pray about this? Are you sure about this, honey? Abram's like, wait, who's Hagar? Oh, that's Hagar? Sounds like a great idea. Sounds like a great idea. And so that's exactly what happens. And they come together and Hagar becomes pregnant. And this is now Abraham's legitimate heir. And it's all going to work out fine, right? Because anytime you cook up some kind of arrangement like that, everybody in that arrangement's happy. It's a disaster. Man, it's a total disaster. Sarah doesn't like Hagar. Hagar doesn't like Sarah. Sarah doesn't like Ishmael, the son born to them. It's just this big mess. And God has to step in and God does what he always does and it's fix what humans mess up. 
And God says again to Abraham, this was not the plan. This is not what I told you. It's not through Hagar. It's through Sarah. Would you trust me? Would you, would you trust me? You have this limited knowledge of what's going on in your life. You have this limited knowledge of trying to deal with all the pressure that's crashing in on you. But Abram, I have unlimited knowledge. I see things that you couldn't possibly see. I need you to trust me. And something different happens in Abraham's life. Abraham and Sarah, they ultimately see God come through and Isaac is born. They name him Isaac, which means laughter, because Sarah couldn't believe that something like this would happen, but it did. And in her old age, she gives birth to Isaac, and God has made good on his promise. And the real moment for Abraham is not the birth of Isaac. The real moment for Abraham is Genesis 22. And this is how the story begins. The Lord shows up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And I want you to go to the region of Moriah. And there on the mountain of Moriah, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me. It sounds like such an awful request. Sounds like such a strange request. But this is how the story of God plays out. God is up to something here in this story. And something has happened from the Abraham who in Genesis 16 was unwilling to trust completely the ways and the promises of God. What we read in Genesis 21 or 22 is Abraham who says to this amazing, awful, can't believe God is asking me to do this kind of request. He obeys. He gathers together the wood. He gathers together the knife. He gathers together the, the way to make a fire for a burnt offering and he says to his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, he says, it's time to go to Moriah. We're going to offer a burnt offering to the Lord. And so the two of them begin this journey to Moriah. He's trusting God completely. And the key of this moment is, is Isaac looking at his son and saying, Dad, you've got the wood You've got the knife. You've got the ability to make fire. You've got everything you need for a burnt offering. But, Dad, there's one thing you're missing. The lamb for the sacrifice. What about that? And Abraham says this. Abraham answered, God himself will provide. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. The writer of Hebrews reflects on this moment. The writer of Hebrews says this, that, that Abram had become so resolved in his faith. He was so committed to the plan and the purpose of God that he, he resolved in his head that, that if this is what God is asking me to do, if God is asking me to sacrifice my one, my only son, my son whom I love, if God is asking me to do that, then somehow in, in, in God's ability and power, he can raise Isaac back up from the dead. And that is a very different Abraham. The Abraham of Genesis 22 is, is very different than the Abraham of Genesis 16. Because here he is with this absolute trust in God's ability to even raise the dead. And he says to Isaac, the Lord will provide. And friends, that's exactly what God did. They get to the altar. At some point, I don't know how this conversation went down, but, but Abraham looks at Isaac and says, the Lord is calling us to offer you as a sacrifice and this is what I have to do in obedience to the Lord 
And Isaac allows himself to be bound and he's placed on the altar and the wood is arranged and the fire is prepared. And at some point, Abraham reaches to to slay his son. He has a knife in his hand and God breaks into the situation and says, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't lay a hand on your son. Now I know that you trust me completely. Now I know that you are completely committed to me and to my way in the world. And wouldn't you know it, God did provide. There caught in the thicket was a ram. And Isaac and Abraham go to the thicket and they pull the ram and they offer the ram instead of Isaac. In that place, God provided. God provided. And what I want to say to us today is that that God is ahead of us. Do you recognize that today, friends? Those of us feeling pressure, it's crashing in on us. How are we going to provide? God is ahead of us. He is providing a way for our story to become a classic. To our story to become an absolute classic. This is the classic moment for Abraham. Do you, we have to know all the twists and the turns. We have to know about Hagar. We have to know about all the times in which Abraham was faithless. But in this moment, through all the twists and the turns, Abraham learned that God was faithful and that God would provide, and he absolutely trusted in God. God is ahead of us. He's providing a way for us to be a classic. And I want us to think about our journey today. Maybe your journey is like some of those cars that we have out in the courtyard today. I asked some of my friends who I knew had classic cars to bring them and so that we could you know, enjoy looking at them and imagine all the stories that those cars could tell today. But, but, but at this point in 2022, something has happened to those cars. They've undergone a, a transformation. And so one of the cars out there is the red C10 1963 Chevrolet pickup truck. I want to tell you a little bit about that car. My friend Ken got this a few years ago, and and when he picked it up, it looked like this. So here's some of the before pictures. He acquired this from a guy over in in Rogers, and and this is what the exterior looked like. You can see the interior picture there, and then there's a picture of the engine. I know some of you guys would really want to see that. I don't even know what it is. Like Someone had to tell me that was an engine. I didn't even know. I, I, I mean, seriously, I, I put my key in the car. I turn it. Well, now I just push a button. It's even more amazing. I push a button. It cranks up, and I go, and it feels like just black magic to me that this even happens. How in the world does this happen? But apparently an engine is involved, and, and when, when Ken got this car, the engine was in rough shape. What you can't see is that there's this substance all along the, the body of this car. It's called Bondo. And I learned about Bondo. It's like, it's like whiteout for cars, okay? Some of you don't even know what whiteout is. Fun. Um, but, but like when you, there's an imperfection in the body of the car, you can use this Bondo stuff and you can put it on and, and then you kind of put some paint over it. And for a while, you know, it hides the imperfection and it looks kind of halfway decent. But, but over time, the Bondo begins to wear out because... No real transformation has taken place. You've only covered up imperfections. So people that restore cars, they have to take these cars, strip away all the bondos, strip away all the things that don't belong. And what you end up with is the frame. And so here's a picture of the the, the truck 
as, as someone going about the business of restoration would, 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 would have to strip it down to this level. And so there's the frame. And my friend tells me that he decided to start with the interior. And I just think that makes a whole lot of sense for what we're talking about today. Because how many of us have been stripped down to the frame? I mean, we've felt the pressure. We've tried to do things on our own strength. We've made a mess of it. But we come to the Lord, and what the Lord does is He starts with the inside. And so Ken started with the inside, and he began to restore the dashboard. And don't miss the fact that it's there where the steering wheel is, where God begins to do the work of restoration. There where the controls are, God begins to do the restoration. From the inside out, God is doing something in our life. And as God gets a hold of the the control center of our life, and as he begins to restore that by his grace, you know, the, the outside begins to come together as well. We begin to look almost, or we begin to look somewhat like we did the day we rolled off the assembly line, or at least how God thought of us when he created the world, when he created us in his image. Got to address that engine. You know, friends, when we surrender our life to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the power to go and to do the things that God has called us to do. And so somewhere in the process, Ken put a new engine, and I'm told this is a much better engine than the one that came out of it. That car can look great, but it's, no, it's not worth anything if it doesn't have a brand new engine to get it where it needs to go. The finishing touches is putting all the panels on and restoring the decals and, and the things that go on it. And, and, and this is a picture of the truck that's outside today. But it went on a journey. It went on a journey of, of restoration. And, and I wonder how many of us today would say, man, I have just been beat down by the pressures. The pressures have caved in on me and I've tried to manage them on my own strength. I've trusted in my own ability to provide. And I've just made a mess of it. And I need God to transform me from the inside out. I want to tell you that God is here. That God can do the work of transformation in your life. How many of you want God to take you and make you into a classic? How many of you want God to begin a journey of restoration in your life? It happened for Abraham, and it can happen for us as well.